Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to What Women Must Know. Thank you for joining me for another inspiring episode. And if you are listening for the very first time, I want to welcome you to What Women Must Know. This show is about empowering you with truthful information so you can make the most informed decisions possible regarding your health and well-being. And I truly believe that the most important thing we can do is have an open mind, stay curious, and to keep learning because there are always solutions to whatever challenge you may have. But uh, we really need to um, have an open mind and explore possibilities. And that is what the show is offering you. Fantastic conversations with people who have achieved great um, and profound transformations in their own lives and are here to share with you. So today we have um, a really important conversation. We're going to be exploring how to defeat your cravings and learn the back door to weight loss with my guest, Dr. Glenn Livingston. So let's jump into things because there's lots to talk about today. And I want to, first of all, share a little bit about my guest. So Dr. Glenn Livingston is a veteran psychologist and longtime CEO of a multimillion dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Dr. Glenn's work, theories, and research have been published in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Chicago Sun-Times. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. So if you can relate to any of these issues, if you find that you are a prisoner to your own food cravings, if you're dealing with your own weight challenges, or know someone uh, who is dealing with their own weight challenges or cravings, I'm so glad you're here listening to this really important conversation. So without any further ado, let me welcome Dr. Glenn Livingston to What Women Must Know. Glenn, it's so good having you here, and thank you for the great work you're doing and for the inspiration and solutions that you're offering people around the world. Well, it's a delight to be here and any opportunity to um, inspiring help. I'm very open to it. I've been looking forward to this all week. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Well, you really are a man on a mission, and um, and you've taken on a really big mission. So I always like to ask my guests a, a little bit about their own personal story, and obviously you've had your challenges with weight. And uh, let's let's talk a bit about the journey that you've been on and what led you to the passion and the mission that you have now. Okay. Um, I like to say that I lost the bar. I lost the war with the chocolate bar in 1982, and for the next 20 years or so, I was looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container for the longest time. Um, there's a lot, a lot more to it than that, but um, essentially, I was a. I'm six four, and I'm. Like modestly genetically gifted, I'm modestly muscular just without doing anything about it. And I discovered if I worked out for a couple of hours a day, I could eat wherever I wanted to. 
which I did not think was a problem. I, you know, I could have two whole pizzas or a box of muffins or a box of chocolate bars. And at, you know, 16, 17 years old, I just didn't think that was a problem. I thought it was great. Um, when I got a little older, 22, 23, I was married. And I was commuting two hours each way to get my PhD and see patients. And then I come home at night and, you know, I help my my ex-wife with the business a bunch and, you know, God forbid she wanted to talk to me. I, I didn't have two minutes to be able to work on <laughs> you know. Um, but I found the food still had a hold on me. And, you know, the weight took a while to start coming on. What was harder was that I was just thinking about it all the time. I would, um, you know, I'd be sitting with like a high-risk patient who was suicidal or something and Thank God I never lost anybody, and thank God I fixed this eventually. But back then, I'd be thinking, you know, when can I get the next pizza? Or how do I how do I get to my stash of chocolate? I can't wait till this person's done. And that, that really bothered me because I come from a family of psychologists and psychotherapists, uh, literally 17 of us in the extended family. And I, it was always just most important to me to be a really good psychologist. And... To do that, you you have to be present. It's it's not about solving the jigsaw puzzle of people's lives. It's about um, getting them to love and trust you enough that they're willing to think new thoughts and take new risks. Um, you know, the the intellectual piece of it is about just study, but it's not really that hard. It's it's a relationship that's hard, and I I just found that I couldn't be. 100% present, and um, that really bothered me. Um, coming from the family that I came from, I I took a very depth psychology approach to fixing it. I thought, well, I must have a hole in my heart, and that's why I keep trying to fill the hole in my stomach. And I went to, you know, the best psychologists and psychotherapists, and I took medication for a little while, and um, I went to Reeves Anonymous for a couple of years, and it, it was a very soulful journey. I feel like it's part of why I am who I am today, so I don't regret it. But it didn't help me with the overeating. I get I get a little better and a lot worse, a little thinner and then a lot fatter. Um, you know, and over the years, I kind of dieted my way up to um, almost 300 pounds. And my triglycerides were over a thousand, and the doctors were yelling at me. And um, I was in bad shape. I had rosacea and eczema and all kinds of autoimmune things. And um, there were a couple of things which changed my paradigm. So instead of trying to heal my own wounded child, what really worked for me somewhere around the time I turned 40. I'm over 60 now. But somewhere, somewhere around the time I turned 40, there are three things that happened that really changed the paradigm to being more of a alpha wolf of my own mind rather than healing my own wounded child. The first one was because I I didn't have kids and my you know my wife at the time traveled for business. Um, I had a lot of time on my hands, and I wound up starting a second career. I was a child and family psychologist. I, I didn't set out to work with eating disorders. I was a child and family psychologist, and um, I had also been trained in a scientist practitioner program, and 
I knew a lot about statistical modeling and, you know, predicting what people are thinking based upon what they do rather than asking them directly. And that turned out to be useful in industry. Um, you know, my ex-wife was, she was a focus group moderator and she was doing advertising research. And she introduced me to some clients and I sold them some projects. And before I knew it, I was doing um, this type of advertising research where I'd, well, let's just say I was on the wrong side of the war. I was like selling drugs and sugar legally. But, um, you know, I kind of wish I didn't do it at this point in my life. I feel like I was, I, I was getting a lot of money for being a hidden persuader, basically. Um, but what I did see when I would work at the big food companies, what I did see was that they were spending millions of dollars to pay these rocket scientists to engineer these hyper-palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and salt and, you know, cytotoxins. And, and it's all aimed at hitting the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And, you know, the result of that is there's some fat cat laughing all the way to the tank every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. I mean, it's addiction. That's, that's what happens. And I said to myself, well, this is like a perfect storm. This has nothing to do with my personal psychology. It doesn't matter if my mama dropped me in my head or her mama dropped her in her head. Um, mm-hmm. This is, you know what I mean? This is an external force. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sorry, did you want to say something? I don't mean to go on and on. No, um, no I just, um, you know, I, I think you're making such an important point here that might be a revelation for a lot of people because it is, um, it has been a model for so many people that their cravings and their need to, to eat, um, especially the, the junk food, really came from some wounded place within them from their past, right? And I think we've all looked at that. But there is something much more insidious going on that is driving this need to eat really what is defined as junk food, the high-carb, the ultra-processed food. There is something that has hijacked our brain. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's, um, first of all, Cravings in and of themselves, particularly strong cravings, are not a sign of a diseased brain almost almost entirely, almost 99% of the time. They're not a sign of a diseased brain. They're a sign of a healthy brain doing its job. You know, 100,000 years ago, if we didn't have food, strong food cravings, we wouldn't have survived. You know, if, if you, some caveman, let's call him Thag, he sees a monkey and he follows it to a banana tree, um, he's got to be really motivated to follow that monkey because otherwise in a scarce food environment, you know, he could have starved. And he had to be motivated to eat as much as he could when he found the bananas too because you don't know when he's going to find the next trait. So cravings are a problem in the modern food environment. They weren't a problem 100,000 years ago. I don't I don't think we had eating disorders 100,000 years ago. I don't, I don't think Thag was sitting around saying, Oi, Martha, eat too much mammoth. I, I just don't think that was – I think it's an artifact of what's happening with industry. The the other thing is that if you look at the neurology of it, it seems like the cravings are driven by the reptilian brain, by the kind of the brainstem, which is all about fight or flight, 
you know, meet or ignore. Um, it's like eat, mate, or kill. It's not. It's not really about um, about love. You know, love comes from the mammalian brain. Love comes from the neocortex that says, you know, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on my loved ones, my family, my tribe, um, and even my longer-term goals like health and fitness or weight loss or spirituality or art or music or my contribution to the world. So this is a really primitive thing going on. There were hundreds of millions of dollars targeting um, targeting the reptilian brain to try to get it to turn off your rational thinking. Um, and the reptilian brain does have the ability to do that because it's responsible for keeping us alive. And so people say, well, why can't I read a diet book all weekend? And, you know, then Monday afternoon there's a chocolate bar in front of me at Starbucks, and I hear this voice in my head that says, well, you've worked out hard enough. It's not going to gain any weight. Um, start your silly diet tomorrow. Like, what? why does that irrational thought hold sway? And you know, there's a whole list of reasons for it, but basically – the reptilian brain perceives it as an emergency, um, that you need more resources, and it's learned that there are these intense amount of calories available in a small space for not that much effort, um, and it thinks that's the priority. It, it, so you, you need to actually actively do things to take, take back control of that and, and um, convince it that it's not a priority and get, your, get back in your right mind. Um, so, you know, long story short, I saw the advertising industry, I saw the food industry, I saw the treatment industry telling people they couldn't resist even if they wanted to. The best they could do is quit one day at a time, which which doesn't have evidence to support it, by the way. Um, and I said, this is a perfect storm. I mean, you can walk out of a out of a convenience store and see another one across the street now with hundreds of thousands of calories available for very little money and very little effort. And it's a wonder to me that anybody actually eats well in today's world. But here's what I did, because I don't mean to just scare everybody and make, make them feel miserable about this, because obviously I find a solution, and, you know, I've helped thousands of people to find a solution also. Um, I, I, I read a book called Rational Recovery, which talked about bifurcating your thoughts into – he, he writes more about alcohol and drugs than um, than food. He, he's more about black and white addictions, which you can give up entirely. Um, so I had to modify a lot of things. But the idea that if you bifurcated your thoughts, if you were had a very clear rule and you bifurcated your thoughts into those that suggested that you would cross the line and those that suggested that you say it, that you um, you know, keep to your rule then you'd have a mechanism for waking up at the moment of impulse. So, so for example, chocolate was my thing, and if I said to myself, okay, let's make a rule that I'm never going to have chocolate on a weekday again. And that way, if it's a Wednesday afternoon in Starbucks, and I hear that voice that says, just start tomorrow, you can start your silly diet tomorrow, it'll be just as easy, I say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's not me. Those, those are that group of destructive thoughts which I assigned a fictional entity entity to. Um, the name I gave that entity is kind of embarrassing at this point for a sophisticated psychologist like me because I I wasn't going to teach this. It was a very private thing. I just was 
kind of desperate to figure it out myself. I, I actually called up my inner pig, um, and I would say that um, chocolate on a weekday would be pig slop. And if I would hear that voice, I would say, well, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my pig squealing for slop. I don't need pig slop. I don't like, I don't let fire animals tell me what to do. And it sounds very ab- abrasive and crude. And I, I now know you don't have to call it a pig. You can call it your food monster or you can call it something else. <laughs> Um, but it worked really well, and I caught on like wildfire when I eventually published it, by the way. Um, people actually pointed me in bookstores sometimes and go, aren't you the pig guy? Um, <laughs> which, which is really great on the first date, I have to say. <laughs> um, and and um, But what what that did is it, it made everything not such a mystery anymore. I, I can't say I totally recovered the moment I did that. But sometimes I did. Sometimes I made the right choice. And I would slowly, I would slowly alter the rules and come up with a, you know, another rule to add. And, and, um, you know, I, I kept a journal for a lot of years figuring out what was wrong with what, what the pig was saying. So for example, you can't, starting tomorrow is not easier because the principle of neuroplasticity says what fires together, wires together. So if you you have the thought, okay, I've got a craving for chocolate, I'll just eat it and start tomorrow, and then you have the chocolate, you're more likely to say start tomorrow again tomorrow because you've reinforced the thought. And you're more likely to have a deeper craving tomorrow because you've reinforced the craving. So if you're in a hole, you've got to stop digging and use the present moment to be healthy. And that's an example of what I'd call a cognitive refutation, or just fixing your thinking about food, taking away those justifications and excuses. And that would help me get back into my right mind. And over the course of several years, I recovered like that. And, you know, I'd lose 10 or 15 pounds at a time. Sometimes that's all I would do for a year. Um, but I brought myself back down. Like I'm, I'm in a normal healthy weight now for almost 15, 18 years. Um, and, and then, you know, later on, after I published the book around 2015 and it really took off in 2016, I had over a million readers and we're getting dozens of people, you know, and then eventually hundreds of people that we were coaching. Um, and I say we, cause I have to hire a bunch of coaches to help me. I would watch people and there would be, um, Essentially, in the first couple of years, we got really good at fixing people's thinking quickly about food. So we could disempower their excuses in about a month. And within a month, people would say they were about 90% better. The official statistic was 89.4% reduction in overeating episodes. Um, you know, and that would drop back a bit, you know, a couple of months down the road because a bunch of people would stop doing it. And um, But still, we were doing pretty well. But I, I saw there was a chink in the armor. It's, it's what I would call a conscious pig party, where if um, someone would adopt a rule and they were doing really well, um, it's like all of a sudden they would say, oh, screw it, just do it. I just really want it. And all their rules would go out the window. And my thinking tools 
were, if people were active with them, would work to greatly reduce those episodes, but they didn't eliminate them completely. And um, so I got to work the last couple of years really thinking about, well, what's that about? Why, why do people periodically say, well, just screw it, just do it? And I thought back to what I actually did to recover. And I realized that it wasn't just that I fixed my thinking and eliminated the excuses so it would be uncomfortable to indulge. What I also did was pay more attention to my nutrition and my sleep and my, you know, social contact and my, um, my hydration. And I recognized that I would have more trouble if I'd skip a meal, for example. And I started to look to see that, you know, when I would have the chocolate cravings, usually around two or three in the afternoon, if I had a smoothie instead, eventually I settled on a, either a kale banana or a celery banana smoothie, that I, like, I wouldn't really get high with food the same way you would with chocolate, but I, I didn't really have the craving and combined with the refutation, combined with fixing my thinking, taking care of the authentic nutritional needs made a made a big difference. Mm-hmm. And I'll wrap this up in a second. Mm-hmm. So so I I also um saw that that was happening with my clients. That's when they would have the conscious pig party. But it wasn't just if they didn't get enough nutrition, it could be when they were overwhelmed with decision-making all day long because, you know, willpower is just the ability to make good decisions and you can only make so many good ones every day. There's some strong research that points to that. Um, and I started telling people to take, you know, two 10-minute breaks a day where they put down their phone and nobody was allowed to email them and they couldn't make any decisions whatsoever, just for 10 minutes. And I noticed people would do a little better when they did that. And I noticed I would just feel calmer when I gave myself those two 10-minute decision-free breaks. Um, you know, and there, and there are things like drinking, drinking more water and having a little more social contact. And um, I eventually came to the conclusion that what's driving this is organismic distress, where people just feel like things are not okay. And I think that the reptilian brain fires up at that point and says, we need resources. How many calories can we get as quickly as possible because we don't have what we need right now? Um, and then we added some breathing exercises you could do to get through that. And, um, you know, started getting significantly better results. And combined with things I've learned about the science of cravings and overeating over the last several years, I felt it was time to, you know, write the new book, which um, – it's really the best of the best. That's that's why I wrote to future cravings. So it sounds like it's the journey of self-regulation on many levels, right? It's yep. being able to have strategies. And I want to I, I want to go back to what you said earlier when you were doing the consulting with the food industry, because sure. um, there is um, an intentional agenda in the food industry in that in the ingredients they use, particularly fructose, um, a lot of other chemicals, to intentionally uh, cause people to be addicted to the 
to the to the junk food, to really call it ultra processed food now. Well, what was your insight when you worked in that industry? And by the way, um, it is all about money. Yeah, it's it's scary. Yeah, I mean there were a few there were a few, there were a few things. Um, one was that there are chemicals that they put in some of these bags and boxes and containers that can interfere with, you know, the regulation of leptin and ghrelin, which lets you know when you're hungry and full. Um, and they also they they play on the variety impulse. So, for example, when I got this from a client, when they are manufacturing a bag of chips, that bag is often not manufactured on a unitary assembly line, but on a multitude of assembly lines, each one varying just slightly in flavor. Now, in nature, if you came across a patch of food that varied slightly in flavor, you would it would be a survival advantage for you to keep eating because probably that variation in flavor was caused by a variation in micronutrients. So you were getting a diversity of micronutrients that you needed to survive. Um, but obviously, they're not putting in additional micronutrients to the different varieties here. So when you're eating a bag of chips, you're not eating – they don't all taste exactly the same because they want you to keep eating. And there are other other mm. evolution – I'm sorry? No, I'm just – that was just interesting insights that all the different flavors you have to choose from on that shelf of all the chips and, you know, the variations on the theme. But, you know, there's just so many of them out there, which, what, 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 you know, what, what, you kind of put it together. Yes, it, it's but it's not just the variation between the different bags. It's the variation within a bag. Mm-hmm. So, so yes. the, the chips in a bag, I, okay. Then there are things like um, they tap the variety impulse with the packaging, too. I remember working with a food bar manufacturer that told me that their most profitable insight was taking the vitamins out of the bars and putting money into the packaging instead. We're, we're largely doing that. So they made these very bright, multicolored packages. Now, in nature, if you came across a diversity of color of, like, fruit and vegetables, you'd be getting a diversity of micronutrients. Just think about eating the rainbow. You know, you're supposed to have a you know, green lettuce and bright red tomatoes and blueberries and yellow carrots and, you know, purple grapes. You're, you're getting a variety of micronutrients. But here, they're actually taking the nutrients out. And so, you know, I thought that was kind of predatory. I thought that um, that's, again, pushing those evolutionary buttons without giving you what you need to feel satisfied. Um, and then they, they make very strong use of plausible deniability. Like, um, you know, this, this bag of potato chips is made with avocado oil. And, you know, ignoring the fact that when you heat any oil, it, there are studies that say it becomes carcinogenic, as are the acrylamides that are, you know, created in the frying process. And, you know, n- nobody really rationally thinks a bag of potato chips is good for you. But you're not really talking to the rational brain. You're really packaging for the irrational brain, for the, for the reptilian brain. And when you see 
you know, made with avocado oil, that, that's, that plausible deniability that you're doing something bad for you is um, mm-hmm. really all we need to keep going. Um, and, you know, I tell my clients, you have to remember there is a difference between something that's good for you and something that's less bad for you. Um, you know, and all of, like you walk into a big health food store, you can do a lot of damage to yourself in a big health food store because there, there are all these bags and boxes and containers that have this plausible deniability. My cat is banging on the door. I don't know why. Um, have all this plausible deniability in the packaging. And, you know, if you if you allow them to, without thinking about it, you're going to go ahead thinking you're doing something good for yourself when you're really not. It's like smacking yourself in the head with the blunt edge of a hammer instead of the um, the sharp edge. Maybe it's a little less bad for you, but it's not necessarily good for you. So those are the kinds of things that I saw. Um, I also saw that like, I don't think these people were evil who were working on it. Like they're really, they're re- it's really driven by economic forces and there's a lot of pressure from the corporation at the top to produce the profits and the consumers say they just want something fun and, you know, they don't want to be healthy all the time. It's, it's just, um, you know, people vote with their dollars. And so I don't think these people are totally evil, but I don't know. I, I eventually opted out. <laughs> not, not totally, maybe just 70%. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe a little evil. They throw a lot of money. There's a lot of money floating around there. I got to tell you, they throw a lot of money. Oh, it's, it's huge. You know, I have a well, a couple of things I want to say, but I have a I, I have a quote here that uh, came from Dr. Robert Lutzig, um, who's been fighting the industry and trying to get people's health back. I'm sure you know him. So um, he has a quote that says, "Approx." This is blew my mind. Listen to this one. Approximately eighty percent of the six million six million consumer packaged foods in the United States have added caloric sweeteners. And then he goes on and says, sugar's not dangerous because of its calories or because it makes you fat. Sugar is dangerous because it's sugar. It's not nutrition. And when consumed in excess, it's a toxin and it's addictive. And I think, you know, we can say that about many of the other chemicals put into processed food, but 6 million consumer packaged foods in the United States have uh, sweeteners, particularly fructose, which is the most damaging to the brain and to the body. Shocking, right? Isn't it? I mean, you know, we're fighting this overwhelming enemy that's at us from all sides when it comes to nutrition and food and you go into a supermarket or even, like you said, Whole Foods, it's still filled with foods that are, you know, have, are processed with sugar and carbs. Yeah. And other chemicals, other chemicals that are addictive in nature. And I think we're dealing with addiction. Um, so have you come across the work of Julia Ross, who I um, interviewed on the podcast, who works with cravings through um, providing amino acids to people? So um, they stop their cravings. I'm rudimentally familiar with it, but um, not not enough to quote chapter and verse about my opinion or anything. Yeah, it's so interesting because this is the work she's been doing. It's working with amino acids. So when we do have a diet 
that can, can, um, contains uh, a high percentage of ultra-processed foods, um, we're actually missing nutrition, right? We're missing key um, proteins, vitamins, minerals. So we're becoming more and more deficient. And therefore, um, the brain um, can't actually make the key uh, nutrients like the amino acids it needs to calm the brain down or to stop the cravings or to stop the obsessive thinking that goes on because we're deficient. So um, there are just so many angles that we're talking about here um, in, in our conversation, Glenn, of what we need to do because of how our food supply has has truly, I mean, hijacked is the only word that comes to mind. We, it's it's the most diabolical thing that's happened to our culture, and that that and that's spread around the world, right? That our you know fast food diet and has spread around the world, and it's diabolical because it's destroying people's health, their thinking processes. Um, uh, it's making us slaves to. Um, to non-food. Exactly. Or to food-like substances. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. But you can opt out. And there, and there are – it requires a certain amount of thinking and a little bit of study to, um, you know, develop some really common sense techniques which but aren't taught in the school or on television or anything like that to, um, you know, regulate how you're going to approach these foods and, what role you want them to play in your life and to, um, you know, and to eat the healthier diet that you really want to have. And, and you can adjust your cravings so that you eventually crave the healthier things that you want. Like people think you're going to be tortured forever but because you're going to miss all this stuff, but you really don't if you do it the right way. Your, your taste buds and your, you know, dopaminergic pleasure systems They'll adjust to crave the things that you feed it. Um, you know, for example, if I have a chocolate bar every day, what will happen is that my the first day will be extremely pleasurable, but then over time it will be a little less and a little less pleasurable because my taste buds and my pleasure systems will downregulate. In the same way that your auditory systems would downregulate if you – sleep underneath the subway every day. I had an apartment like that in graduate school, and, um, you know, I couldn't sleep at all the first week, but a couple of months in, I couldn't even hear the subway because my brain adjusted. Mm-hmm. That's what happens with sugar, too. Um, but when you downregulate your sugar, your sugar response, what happens is you start to feel like you hate fruit and vegetables because they're nowhere near as sweet as the chocolate bar. The good news is, though, that if you stop eating chocolate bars every day or let's say you just have them once in a great while, your um, your system will upregulate much quicker than you think it will. And within a couple mm-hmm. of months, you'll be, you'll be able to taste the delicious sugars in you know, natural fruit and vegetables. And um, and you, you don't have to believe me about this. You just have to try it. Really, and you get to the point that the things that you used to think of like treats, you start to think of like punishments. It just doesn't seem rewarding at all. Mm-hmm. Unless you push through and you keep eating them, in which case the 
when the addiction comes back. But um, yeah, no, we we well, live. Um, we, we seem to live in a world where everybody has tacitly agreed to slowly kill themselves with food. And um, oh. you know, Jakarta Krishnamurti said, "It's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society." And I, yeah. I think that, at least to a certain extent, I think people need to actively opt out of the system. Um, you know, I, I the methods that we use, we don't we don't preach any particular diet, and two out of three people seem to be able to moderate these types of things if they don't want to give up their potato chips or their chocolate bars or their you know pizza. Um, but it's just you know it requires some active thought and strategizing and um and a little bit of work to put it together and and education and the awareness of just what um you, you know what you're putting into your body what it's composed of and consequences you know and and often i guess when people are sick enough or um obese enough you know and and so compromised in their ability to function you know, pain is a great teacher, right? So let's talk about, I want you to talk about Defeat Your Cravings program because you're offering a lot of great resources for people. And there's, um, you know, I think that your audience is not just people who want to lose weight, not just people who are feeling unwell, but people who feel that so much of their thinking, obsessive thinking is around food, right? And cravings and just, feeling that those cravings control them. So let's talk about what you're offering people and your book and your programs and, and you know, more of the, the research you've done. Okay. Okay. I'll tell you where people can get a free copy of the book at the end. Um, so I, I call it the back door to weight loss because it turns out that if you concentrate too much on weight loss, it actually contributes to that organismic distress that, you know, makes the reptilian brain say, you know, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. Um, you know, it that pushes the rational thinking aside. So we concentrate more on being able to formulate specific rules for yourself. The, the key question I ask people is, well, what role do you want that food to play in your life? They'll talk to me about eating too much pizza or, Pop-Tarts or, you know, um, or chocolate or something. And I say, what role do you want that to play in your life? And some people will say, I just want it out of my life entirely. And other people will say, no, I, I wish I could have, you know, a half a bar a week like my sister does and, you know, fold up the rest for later. And so we'll, we'll ask them to get very specific. We'll ask them to start with one simple rule something that's a really low bar for them. Maybe it's too high a bar to think I'm only going to have, you know, half a chocolate bar on Saturdays. Maybe they can have one ounce a day of dark chocolate or something like that, or two ounces a day of dark chocolate, just to get started with so that they um, have some experience of success. Because, Because what happens with food troubles is that um, people tend to get demoralized and defeated, and then they just kind of give up and they keep putting off making a difference until the next day, the next day, the next day, or the next week. Um, 
And then once you have that rule in place, you can listen carefully for that inner voice to suggest that you break it. We expect that part of the purpose of the rule is to stimulate that so you can start to examine and disempower it. And if you, you know, let's say you'll, let's say you're going to have no more than two ounces a day and you're at a party or something and you hear um, a little voice that said, oh, come on, everybody's having fun. You can certainly go beyond that two ounces tonight. Then at that point, you wake up and you do a little breathing. Um, we, we like people to do a 7-11 breath where you breathe in for a kind of 7 and out for a kind of 11. And the reason that's important is it tells your brain that there's not an emergency here. Because if there was an emergency, if you were running from a hungry bear or something like that, you would have to be huffing and puffing and huffing and puffing really quickly. So when you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, the brain interprets that there's not an emergency. Um, the technical name for it is you're kind of entering the parasympathetic nervous system, which says it's okay to rest and digest because we have what we need right now. There's no need for urgent mm -hmm. action. And that, that slows you down enough that you can start to think straight again. And then you say, okay, Mr. Pig, why, why should I break my rule and have that, you know, third or fourth ounce now? And it's going to say, you know, because a little, few extra bites are not going to hurt, right? And maybe it's going to say, um, you know, because you're, you're going to really be missing out if, um, if you don't do it. And then you take another couple, couple of 7-Eleven breaths and you ask yourself, why is the pig wrong? What, what's it saying incorrect? It's usually telling a half-truth and a bigger lie. So if it says a couple of extra bites are not going to hurt, well, that might be true. But usually when you break the rule, you're going to go way over the line. So it's not going to just be a couple of bites. And also, a couple of bites beyond the rule is a difference between whether you're in charge or the pig is in charge, whether you're feeling like the master or the slave. It's a different way of life. So you disempower what the pig is saying. If the pig says, you're really going to be missing out here, you say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be missing out on a lot of other things if I do indulge. Because if I don't get this chocolate thing under control, then you know, I'm going to be worried about developing diabetes or cardiovascular risk or high blood pressure. And um, you know, it's really it's really time for me to take control of my life like this. And I don't I want to walk in the world as a tall, thin man and feel confident as a leader. And like I, you know, can hike mountains and spend time with my nephew and my niece. And you know, um, I don't care if I'm missing out on something in the moment because I don't want to miss out on those bigger things. So you come up with an answer for all the things that your pig might say, and suddenly you feel a little calmer. And then you ask yourself, well, am I genuinely hungry? Do I need some nutrition? Is there anything else that I need in terms of self-regulation? And um, why would I feel like a better, happier person if I stuck to this plan? Um, and you put that all together, and it's usually enough for people to turn away from the from the indulgence and stick to the rule. Um, and then, like I said, the rest of it has to do with um, 
through self-regulation. So I, I start by asking people what's one simple rule that you could and would follow. There's something that's mm -hmm. um, not too onerous and would make a difference, but it's not going to steer you into running the other way. What, what would you do? And then we build from there. And that's, you know, that's really what we do. We've gotten really good at it. Um, we've worked with a couple of thousand people, but um, that's what we do. You know, Glenn, it, it sounds like it's um, doing that breathing is really quite important, I would think, having studied a lot about breath, because if you can um, remember to take those breaths, like you said, the, you know, seven in, 11 out, get into parasympathetic, get into that um, relaxed state, um, you're more likely to have the ability to be mindful, right? To observe the conversation, observe your thoughts, that be outside of those thoughts, not be the thoughts. So when you can observe and see the thinking process, you're also able to make other choices, right? So you're in a calmer state, you're more observing, and you're not in a reactive place, which to me is a really powerful strategy for any aspect of life. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're, you're prying apart that space between stimulus and response. You're, mm -hmm. you're recognizing yeah. that your brain wants to automate these habit loops and you're teaching yourself to intervene and be proactive about what wow. you want to do. So you have worked with um, so many people now. I think you have a million, did you say a million people who've been working with this program? Is that correct? Oh, we've had a million readers for all of my books um, combined, mostly, mostly in the first one. And then I also, I write for Psychology Today, and I had another million readers there, too. So, obviously, you're creating a, a, a really large community of people who are reading your book, Defeat Your Cravings, and then applying, and then sharing what their experience is. Yeah, so we, I mean, we also have a community of, um, you know, several thousand, two thousand clients that we've trained directly, um, and they mm -hmm. kind of, you know, talk to each other and support each other. Yeah, so I would think that, you know, when you're working in a community of people um, with a program, with a model that you can follow and then have people who are also committed to that model, there's a lot of support and encouragement, which would be a really important piece of the healing of the cravings. It's really funny because I, I resisted it at first because the experience that I had in trying to overcome my eating addiction, I was, I think I was encouraged to be too dependent upon other people. You know, I spent years and over years anonymous having sponsors and things like that. And mm -hmm. I really, I really mm -hmm. thought that the dependency was like telling your pig that you were too weak to do it on your own. But, you know, so in the first book, I kind of, I was, I really resisted even offering coaching. I just wanted people to get better by, with the book itself. But people kept asking, and we opened it up, and then I saw that people actually did get better quicker using the coaching. And I hired a researcher to look at the evidence, and there really is a preponderance of evidence that suggests that people do about twice as well when they're part of the community. So um, 
So I, I just mm-hmm. I, I run the I run the community and I try to tell people not to become dependent forever on it. I think of it as a short term endeavor and sure you can make friends there and support each other, but um um Stephen Covey, I actually once traded consultations with him. Um and he taught me that the ultimate in maturity was something called interdependence. It wasn't independence, but interdependence. It's mm-hmm. like it's not like dependence says I can't do it I can't do it by myself. I need sponsors and people to watch over me all the time. Independence says I can do it by, by myself, but interdependence says I could do it by myself, but I could do it better, faster, and stronger with the team of people. And so that's what I try to encourage. Um, but, you know, the community aspect works a little better because part of what creates organismic distress is a sense of isolation. You know, we're, we're pack animals. We're supposed to have contact. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's part of why it works better. Um, so I like to think we have a unique community where we get the both best best of both worlds and not really a re- re- revolving door. People come in for a little while, they get better and they go, go their own way. Um, at least that's what I try to do. Um, but yes, it, it makes a big difference and it's um, the most meaningful thing I've ever done. It's a wonderful mm-hmm. way to live my life. I didn't expect to do this in my my old age. Well, your old age and your young age. You know, Glenn, it's like so much more satisfying to really be of service to others and uh, to be able to support people in regaining their lives, their control of their lives, their health, their their thinking processes than trying to make uh, food companies richer. (laughs) It's got to be a better choice in life (laughs) for your soul, for your soul, if nothing else. (laughs) Exactly, 100%. Right. Yeah. So, so people can get a free copy of your book going to your website, defeatyourcravings.com. So, do you want to say anything more about what you're offering? I do. I do. Um, so, there's a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. Just click the big blue button and sign up for the reader bonuses. You'll get that. Um, there are a couple of other things I've arranged for you there because. This is an awful lot to present in a one-hour interview, and I know it sounds a little weird. You know, why is there this doctor with a pig on him, pig inside of him on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> I know it, sounds, it, it doesn't sound right. Uh, it sounds cold to me in the abstract. So I, I recorded a whole bunch of full-length coaching sessions so you can hear how this actually works in, in practice, um, and you'll get that too. It's all free. And then um, – I also created a set of food plan starter templates. So regardless of your nutritional philosophy, and you can do this with any nutritional philosophy as long as it's reasonable. If you're telling me you want to be your breatharian or you're going to have 500 calories a day or something, I won't be able to help you. Um, but anything reasonable, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's, um, you know, more towards the vegetarian or carnivore side or if it's point counting or calorie counting or, you know, macrobiotic or ketogenic, it's whatever it is, we can probably help you. I'm more of a plant-based person myself, um, but we don't preach about diet or anything in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, so I created a set of food plant starter templates for all of those so you can see how to get started. And um, 
Yeah, set to futurecravings.com, click the big blue button. Yeah, what a wonderful um, you know, set of resources you provided for people. I, I think it's very admirable, and that's really supporting people to begin to understand and um, find a place to go to learn to make the changes and to access the book that you've worked so hard on and, uh, you know, evolving. So uh, I encourage people to check out the website, defeatyourcravings.com, uh, download a copy of the book, um, take advantage of the coaching sessions that Glenn has put together. You know, it's really uh, – I just want to acknowledge you, Glenn, for um, – the journey you've been on and the and out of that personal journey how you have chosen to really take on this mission in life that is serving so many people around the world and people who are really are in need of help and guidance and there are many ways that we can support the changes we need to make so we make healthier choices and uh, it just sounds like um You've really created something that is not just serving so many people, helping so many people, but really fulfilling your true purpose in life. Thank you. Thank you. you know, I, um, when I got divorced, I decided I wasn't going to go after money anymore. Um, cause we, we just went through most of it anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's been, yeah, well, th- thank you so much. I'm definitely on a mission like to help a million people stop overeating um, per year. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah. Because there's nothing more truly soul satisfying than being on a, a, a true mission, right? And, you know, there's such a different way to be in the world when you, you know you're really serving others and making a difference in people's lives. I mean, I've, I've arranged the business model so that you can get everything you need to recover for free. Um we do have coaching programs because people ask for them and some people need them. Um, and mm-hmm. also because it makes it possible to pay for more advertising and, and distribute the word wider and farther. But, you know, if I didn't have to pay the electric bill at the end of the month, I probably wouldn't charge at all for this stuff because I, mm-hmm. you know, it's just so gratifying to do that. So anyway, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm the but uh, I'm trying, I'm trying my best. Yeah, I think your sincerity really comes across, Glenn, and I think people really appreciate that. They hear they hear that truth of your passion. So it's just been um, such a pleasure to have you on the show to learn more about the journey you're on and how you are there to support so many people who are in need. So again, uh, encourage people. I encourage people go to defeatyourcravings.com, download Glenn's book. Learn more about his program, his services, his community, and know that you can truly empower yourself and change your life and get your health back. And um, be open. Be open to all the possibilities that come into your reality. They're, they're gifts that you have drawn to yourself to make the changes you want. So, um This has been a delightful conversation with my guest, Dr. Glenn Livingston, and his book is To Feed Your Cravings. It's also the website, and uh, we've come to the end of the show. So, Glenn, thanks so much for your time today and the wonderful work you're doing, 
And um, I want to thank all my listeners. And I also want to let everyone know that all my programs are archived. And you can either go to my Facebook page, What Women Must Know. I post every show up there or any other platform, um, whether it's Apple, it's Spotify, whether it's Podbean, you'll find my shows. <laughs> so please listen. Uh, they are life-changing conversations. And uh, to all of you listening today, I always like to say at the end of the show, always honor the wisdom of your feminine self. Bye for now.